Uh, well, good evening. Excellent. Uh, glad to meet out uh, again. Uh, seems cold and fairly damp, but uh, at least it is quite warm in here this evening, which is nice. Um, I'm going to start pretty much on time because I mean, I'm going to try and cover the sovereignty of God in an hour and a half. Uh, so hopefully you'll feel at the end of that quite disappointed that we didn't get <laughs> to everything because it's such an incredibly vast subject matter. But last week we looked at some of the titles of God and the name of God and it's incredibly important to be aware of it because it does affect what we read. Um, I, I just feel, to be honest, it's just incredibly beautiful to see it. And it was incredibly vast what we were looking at because what I was teaching was basically uh, to be applied to the whole of the Old Testament and I believe beyond uh, when we see something of God himself. This week I thought we'd narrow it right down. So we're going to look at one idea found in one verse. And all of our words, by the last one, uh, are to be found in this one verse. Uh, my hope is that we will better understand the verse and therefore better understand what is meant by sovereignty. Uh, the term sovereignty is not a word that is actually found in the Old or New Testament, but it is an idea that is found in numerous examples. So a working definition for the sovereignty of an individual rather than a country. Um, oh, I should point out, uh, if you don't get a handout this week, just like last week, uh, they are all available, um, and the PowerPoint is available, and the recording, if you fall asleep halfway through, uh, is available uh, on the church website. Just go to the website, go to the Heading Fellowship House Groups, and it's all there. Okay, just as an aside. Anyway, as I was saying, uh, sovereignty. Sovereignty is, is, it could be defined as this, the quality or state of being the sovereign, having supreme power or authority. Now, for our purposes tonight, the sovereign would refer to a king rather than maybe a tyrant or a dictator. Uh, but this king is absolute in his authority. So when it comes to God, the idea of a ruler with whom the authority resides, he is therefore called a king or a king of kings. No. You are my king, O God, uh, ordain salvation for Jacob. Good example. To underline uh, this sovereignty, uh, we have the paraphernalia of a monarch being attributed to him. Um, so not just that he's called king of kings, but we also have a throne, a scepter, and a crown. Uh, all these things uh, associated with being the ruler. Uh, interesting enough, when it comes to the crown, um, the crown is a reference sometimes to the royal status of his people who are said to have crowns from his hand. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the crown is very often not just on the head of God, but by uh, our very existence. We are sometimes said to be the crown that sits on God's head. I find that a remarkable description uh, of us as a collective, I have to say. Uh, beautiful. Uh, and of course it's also specifically said to, to reside on the head of Christ, I believe, uh, Messianic uh, in Psalm 132 verse 8, but also we see that in Revelation 14. Now, with this, um, sorry, with this uh, monarchy comes authority. Um, we were looking at some of the titles uh, last week. We could add another one, the Elion, which basically means the Ascended Mighty One, the, the Mighty One being uh, El. 
Um, I suppose most often that's translated um, just simply most high in, in our translations. <coughs> it is a description that's used uh, by Melchizedek in Genesis 14. It's very commonly found in the Psalms, but the purpose of that is really to, to draw a comparison between mankind and God. There's this big gap, as it were, between the two. So Psalm 97, uh, for you, Yahweh, are Elyon over all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. So the idea of um, you know, all the power, which is what we were thinking of last week when we thought of Elohim, uh, and absolute authority put together brings us to the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, though, is more than just power. It's more than just crowns and thrones and scepters. God is in control. And that's a significant part of what is meant by sovereignty, that God is ultimately in control. He is able to turn the evil actions of men into good. After all, that's what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20. Now, I want you to bear in mind just how in control God is. Having been sold into slavery to his cousins uh, that just happened to be passing by as his brothers were preparing to kill him, uh, having just been sold to Potiphar, which meant that he just happens to end up in a royal prison. He just happens to be incarcerated with those who have the ear of the king. He just happens to be able to demonstrate a gift that God just happened to have given him. He is then remembered just when it matters, and so he is just in the right place at the right time to save countless lives uh, in the region and specifically his own family, thus making the promises of God come true to that family. He is able to say what you intended for evil, God has meant for good. And these people had the real choice. His brothers decided to sell him. Potiphar's wife decided to betray him. But ultimately God was in control. And the more choice that people have, the greater the control of God, because he ends up exactly where he intended. Now, I realise uh, that there will be different views on the sovereignty of God, how it affects salvation, free will, etc. Fortunately for me, the Old Testament is remarkably clear. <laughs> and so I can just uh, point to what I think is the best picture, the best idea in the text. And we find it in the analogy in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. That's where four of our five words will be found for tonight. Uh, you as well, if you have a Bible, opening up to that text, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Now, I do recognize that that verse is very precious to many, many people. And uh, my intention tonight is not to, to ruin that for you. Uh, my intention is to try and say, well, that's great. But naturally, this verse is even more. And hopefully that's what we'll get by the end of it, that we'll see that a verse which is incredibly precious to so many people is actually even more incredible than we may have thought at first. That's my plan, anyway. So, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and uh, you can already see, maybe through the image that's there and my subtitle, where I'm going to go with this. God as a weaver. Now, bear with me. You may not see that initially in the text, but hopefully by the end of tonight, you will. So, Jeremiah 29.11, um, actually, before I do that, uh, I, I just remember saying last week uh, that it's very helpful to have lots of different English translations to hand. And uh, particularly, uh, if they differ, it's because it's difficult. 
you know. If they are quite wildly differing from each other, it's because the Hebrew is actually quite difficult at this point, and they're all trying to grab something of what is being said. Usually, the Hebrew can say quite a lot more in one sentence than the English can, and so our different translations are trying to grab as much as they can and present it to us. But we don't have to settle for that tonight. <laughs> we get to try and look at the breadth of what is there. But, if you're looking at your texts, and they differ, it's because it's difficult and it's worth investigating <laughs> further. Let's start with what the NIV says with regard to this text. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Okay. Good news, Bible. I alone know the plans I have for you, plans to bring you prosperity and not disaster, plans to bring about the future you hope for. Okay, I'm not quite done yet though. Uh, the message, so I throw that one in. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. Now, uh, these three are, are what we describe as being in the same stable. Uh, they're, they're, uh, overall, they're conveying the same idea. However, I would like you to take five minutes to discuss with the person next to you, and uh, as I said last week, if you don't like the person next to you, then at least somebody near you, to discuss it for five minutes. Uh, what are the differences between these translations? Because they are different. They, they are, they're saying something different. And having seen the differences, what impact would it make? If someone was using one version as opposed to another, what impact would they have in terms of what they think that text is saying? Okay, guys, I'm going to give you five minutes to try and work that all out, and then we'll get the distilled wisdom from all of you in five minutes' time. Thank you. Okay, so... <laughs> I know, it never seems long enough, does it? Uh, so, uh, just uh, from you guys, um, having discussed it with the person beside you or around you, um, what are the differences, and what impact does that make? Starting at the end of the, uh, the verse, the sort of change between to give you a hope and a future, and then to have the future you hope for, changes that aspect of, you know, whether it's a future you decide for, or whether it's a future God has decided for you. It's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is significantly different from a future to the one that you want. That is a big difference. Okay, anything else? The NIV one is an inclusive relationship sort of uh, passage, whereas the Good News one is almost God got his secret plans and only he knows. And Yes, absolutely. And, and based on, on last week, notice uh, that this is the only one that has the actual personal name of God still included. Remember, Yahweh is, is what lies behind those block capitals. Uh, I know I mentioned that uh, last week. It's the only one that is, is so personal, it keeps the name of God. And it's that personal relationship name of God. That's, you know, you're supposed to think that when you see that, that name, if you know what I mean. So yeah, absolutely. And that's significantly different. That's sort of inclusive, relational kind of thing, as opposed to some sort of secret wisdom that will be unleashed at some point. Anything else? 
There's a difference in the amount of care. One is to take care of you, that message, and the other is to give you <coughs> prosperity, yeah. prosper you. And even the negatives are different, not to harm, and not to disaster, not to bring disaster. Yeah. Not to abandon you, it's different again. <laughs> They're completely different things. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I do have sympathy because I do recognise how difficult this text is to translate. Um, unless you just translate it literally with what it says, um, it's actually quite difficult to, to translate. And I, I do have a lot of sympathy. But these three, and they're from the same, as I described, the same stable, the same kind of thought process, they're trying to do the same kind of thing, and they come up with things which are actually quite different. So I think primarily, uh, you know, the the personal name of God, which which I mentioned, I think the good news in the message, they do stand out quite blatantly with this idea of prosperity, which we then associate with material blessing. I'm not suggesting that's what was in the minds of the, the good news translators at the time, back then, that's not quite what that word meant. It is what that word means now. And so we do take that in a very particular way. Uh, And in the latter two, it is quite striking that God basically provides whatever you want. I mean, the future you hope for, uh, you know, uh, there's a promise from God which is then taken as a guarantee for our well-being. Uh, instead of having the future God wants for you. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's quite, a, quite a, a, a difference. I think the prosperity and the getting what you want are two very dangerous uh, um, additions. And they can lead to some real difficulties, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Um, if you understand that God promises this, it's going to be a problem because it's not going to happen. And then that makes God out to be a liar. And the text, not secure. You've got to bear in mind also, just the context. Now, this is being promised to people who uh, are <laughs> experiencing and will experience the absolute worst. Uh, the total devastation of their land, the murder of most of the people they know, uh, those who survive are dragged halfway across the known world and deposited as little better than slaves. Uh, and so we've got to appreciate that when we read that text. Uh, many people will look at that text, and, and I've heard it being used in this way uh, many, many times in many different contexts. You know, this verse will be read out and go, so everything's going to be okay this year. No, that's not how it works. This is the kind of verse that should be behind glass, and on the front of the glass it says, in emergency, break glass, you know. Uh, this is the kind of thing you need to hold on to when everything goes wrong. Um, and there is more of the eschatological. In other words, there's more of the very end of time than the right now about it. But I'm not quite done, because, uh, I mean, I thought, well, let's use a different stable of translation. Let's look at some other versions, as it were, to continue down this idea of, actually, they can be quite different. So here's the ESV. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, so at least the, the name's back in, uh, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a hope and, uh, sorry, a future and a hope. Um, King James, uh, it's a classic for a reason. <laughs> for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Uh, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Quite different again. Now, before we go any further, because these two add slightly more to it, uh, I probably won't give you the full five minutes this time, there's only two of them. Uh, if you take a few minutes to now think about, well, okay. What's been included here? What, what, what additional thoughts 
do we have here compared to what we've just been looking at? Okay, so again, I think it would be three and a half, four minutes uh, to look at these two, and then I'll come back to you again. Okay, so just think with those two. Over to you. Okay, so, bearing in mind we haven't even gone to our first word yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the build-up to it, as it were. Um, before I go any further, you'll notice that some of the words have been underlined uh, in our text. Some of you are looking at going, oh yeah, but uh, <laughs> in the, the, the previous uh, ones, you'll see there's certain words underlined, again underlined. These are actually going to be the words we're going to be looking at in, in, in particular. Um, and I always admit how different these key words are. Now, what difference is? Have you been able to highlight, and what was the impact of the difference? Thoughts are not necessarily concrete. Good. Yeah. Whereas a plan tends to be a little more. I have lots of thoughts in my head, and some of them turn into plans. Yes. But yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 maybe just some of. The men in particular will appreciate this, but when my wife asks me, have you done it? <laughs> and I'm like, I've got plans, you know, I've got thoughts, I've got, I know what I'm going to do. You know, that, that, is, that does not end well. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, see, see, see that idea, oh, yeah, I've got some thoughts, I've got some ideas. That, that, that is a very different thing from, right, I've got a plan of action. And that itself is very different from actually doing something. And, and there is this, you know, I mean, the, the, the thoughts, uh, it's, and yet, the thoughts I think toward you, that's quite different from anything else that's there, if you know what I mean. So, uh, regularly uh, in my day, um, my, my, my brain works uh, reasonably well and it's quite sharp, but regularly through the day I'll have a moment where my mind just kind of goes to some sort of happy place, you know, and I'm kind of daydreaming. You know, and literally when someone asks me what are you thinking of, I have to say nothing. <laughs> That's, that happens, you know. But when I'm thinking thoughts about somebody, you know, and, and, and it's, it's geared towards somebody, um, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a quite a, a beautiful thing. When you think that God has purposely has his mind turned towards you. It's, you know, this is quite beautiful. Okay, yeah, any other differences? Just that last two words, expect and end, you know, what we were saying and what we read and learned, it, it seems to emphasize the idea of destiny. Yes. An, an ultimate destiny from what we're saying. Yes. Uh, I, I, I'm biased, obviously, but I actually really like that idea of the expected end. I'm going to come back to that. I think, actual fact, for that word, that's the best rendering of that word that we have in English, the idea of an expected end. Because it's not just simply <coughs> a future. You know, you're going to have a future. And you're like, okay, <laughs> roll the dice. <laughs> you know, uh, it, 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 you know there's, there's an expected end. In other words, God has so much put his hand on this, there is an outcome which is going to happen. And that's, again, that's quite different, and that's vastly different from you're going to get what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else? Well, 
is it that Jewish people expect of it? This is what the Jewish people expect. I mean, at least it's, it's, it's a very clear, you know, end, if you know what I mean. It's the one that, that everyone can see coming, or the one that God sees coming. But at least it's very clear, as opposed to that kind of vague, you know, up in the air future, or worse, the future you want. Um, I'll come specifically to that, obviously. It's one of our words, and we're, we're going to see what, what it should say, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And maybe why I like that one the, 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 the best. Um, of course, it's, it's not just English translations, so we have many different translations. Uh, the earliest translation is, of course, uh, the Greek, the Septuagint, uh, known as the, the you know, Roman numerals of 70 up there, uh, LXX, uh, based on the, the idea of the, the 70 scholars who, who translated it. There's actually slightly over 70, but it's slightly more awkward, so I'm going to go for the 70 uh, scholars who got the Hebrew into the Greek. And I don't think it really helps, if I'm entirely honest. Uh, it would be rendered, and I will make an inventory of you, a record of peace, and certainly not harm to give you this. Hey, the peace, uh, as it were. And I, I, I always remember looking at it going, don't know why I learned Greek. Uh, <laughs> that really didn't help me at all. Um, but it, again, it's, it's, it's different, I think, is, is kind of my point. And uh, when you do go into different languages, you find that, again, it is different and different and different. I think that's my, my main point, and why it's helpful then to maybe know what was actually behind the text, why it's so difficult to try and get it right. Also, this verse um, is the second most looked up verse uh, that we have. Um, according to um, all of the, the online measures, um, uh, whenever someone looks up a verse in the Bible, this is the one that comes second. John 3.16 is still uh, slightly ahead, um, but this is the second most looked up verse um, on the online world. Um, it is quite important that we grasp what it says. So, of course, this is actually what it says. <laughs> this is not just an opportunity for me to, to, to watch the article about what it says. I think, more importantly, we get to the IH translation, and in case you're wondering, that's, that's me. Um, this is, this is <laughs> trying to, 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 to translate it. And this is the word. For I know the texture uh, or tapestry um, that, that I have weaved over you, says Yahweh. A tapestry of shalom and not of evil to give you an expected end. Now, I'm obviously going to go through this, but that again is very different from what we've just looked at. And I would argue it's actually a very beautiful thing, and we need to look at it very closely, break it down, and see why I've gone for that. So, the great weaver. <laughs> and our, our, our four words here will be plans. Uh, shalom, expecting, and hope. I think are the, the four that I'm really looking for. Um, you know, I, again, I, I just want to remind us that this is a verse that provides a glimmer of hope to a people, not just any people, the people of God, who are going into exile and who have nothing but destruction and death facing them. They are to be crushed, they are to be dispersed by the Babylonians, and so God assures them that they have a future beyond where they are right now, beyond that immediate context, the immediate destruction. It is into this darkness that God makes his promise, and so it begins with the assurance that he is in control, with references to plans, or more accurately in this context, texture and tapestry. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, for I know the 
textual tapestry that I have weaved over, over you a tapestry. Um, the idea is an intricately made cloth. That's a, the kind of idea that we're looking for. And uh, sometimes the English tries to make it uh, more mundane and more readily understood. Um, the idea of God making a tapestry might not necessarily be understood very quickly, and so we've gone for something a little bit more straightforward, the idea of plans or ideas. That could be allowed, uh, but it would be an incredibly, uh, incredibly intricate thoughts is one possible rendering of it. Uh, but uh, it's much more natural to read it as weaving. That's its more natural sense. Uh, the fact that the word is used more than once in that verse, uh, you know, the, the, the texture that I have weaved and the tapestry, the same word essentially being used throughout. The word, I believe, should be used as the weaver. We should keep its more natural sense, particularly in a book like Jeremiah, where God himself is very often seen to be very hands-on, making a point about sovereignty. Uh, there's, of course, uh, God as the potter, which is quite uh, well recognised in Jeremiah. God as a weaver is referred to in Isaiah 38, and it's probably fair to allow its more natural rendering to survive. So intricate thoughts, but more literally what it means is to weave and the product of the weaver. Um, now, we, we see this uh, in a number of different places. Uh, weaving is clearly the intention of this word, uh, just about every other <laughs> time it's used. Uh, Exodus, um, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twinned linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully embroidered into them. That's kind of how we try and use that same word there. Or, for example, uh, Exodus 35. Um, he has filled them with the skill to do any sort of work done by the engraver or the designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twinned linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So everywhere else we use this word, it does tend to be used as the weaver. I think we should probably use it as such in this context. Um, <clears throat> I do recognise, though, uh, something about myself. Um, I mean, you know, if I know the texture that I've weaved over you, uh, I mean, I know the fact that uh, I have this idea in my head of a weaver. Uh, I come from the Western Isles. Uh, when I was a wee boy, I got to go into the shed and see the weaver at work making Harris tweed. And, uh, you know, it, it was quite incredible. It was a kaleidoscope of colour, movement and noise. I hadn't the faintest idea of what was going on. It was incredible. So many things going on. The weaver knew what was going on. The weaver intricately involved with his hands actually on what he was making. He knew what he was doing. Turning it into a thing of beauty. Uh, there is a craft, there is a sense of wonder with what they are doing. There's a skill, there's an endeavour, there's attention to detail when we think of the weaver. Not just a vague idea or plan, but hands-on, being made, even now. I also like the idea that the weaver can't possibly be thwarted by the threads. <laughs> you know, it's not as if you know when he's making the Harris tweed. You know, the 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 the, the, the material could go just turn around and say, "Well, actually, I don't want to be Harris tweed. <laughs> I, I refuse." You know, doesn't have a choice in the hands of the weaver. The weaver makes what he is going to make. In the Jeremiah context, then, I think it is important that we don't have just mere plans or thoughts or notions, something vague, a vague hope going into the chaos. With a weaver, you've got to bear in mind that every single strand has been carefully chosen and put in its right place. 
you know, the weaver ends up with the fabric he intends. I've never seen any of these weavers get to the end, get to the end of their labours and go, oh, I didn't expect feet to be made. Taken <laughs> quite by surprise, you know. They know exactly what they're doing and what they intend to make. Even right down to the final trimming of the piece. I think it's a rather perfect analogy to understand the sovereignty of God. There is a clear degree of choice in people's lives. Well, at the very least, that's why they end up going into exile, <laughs> because they choose wrong. <laughs> there is choice in their lives. Yet even in their rebellion, God is not thwarted. You know, he laughs at their designs of rebellion, and he has promised a saviour. He has promised the Messiah. He has promised that he himself will come and die by this point. And so he's not going to be thwarted by people in rebellion. He's not going to be thwarted when he promised Abraham and then the king, being the eternal king, being promised to David, you know, the Messiah in Isaiah. So the way I often imagine it is that the degree of choice that we have allows us really to choose what colour thread we're going to be. That's slightly oversimplified. I believe that each of us, over our lifetime, are kind of a myriad of different colours. Maybe the good points in your life are the brighter hues, and those dark points in your life are the darker ones. You know? And you know, throughout it all, we've got this, this ability to choose what we're going to be. But ultimately, God uses that thread with all the colours that we chose, puts it in, and ends up with exactly what he intended. That's how sovereign he is. And so I really like to keep in the idea of him being the weaver. <laughs> you know, someone who's got some vague thoughts or plans, I don't want that. <laughs> I want someone who's actually involved right now, doing something right now, with, with incredible care and craft and wonder and complete control over the situation. So I quite like the, the, the literal rendering of the weaver and the texture and the tapestry. But the next word uh, that I want to focus on is shalom. Uh, and I think of this really as the end of suffering. Uh, shalom, uh, normally rendered peace, um, that's where we get that prosper and prosperity in some of our translations. Um, th- that is, is most unfortunate because that is certainly not what is intended in the word shalom. Uh, rather, there is a sense of being complete. Uh, that is uh, conveyed in this word. Uh, so, for example, um, in the kind of negative sense in Lamentations, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what it is to be shalom, complete. Um, the way to understand shalom is to really understand it as the antonym to suffering or calamity. Complete opposite. Uh, the end of suffering is essentially what it conveys. It's therefore used as a contrast to evil, Psalm 14, and is wonderfully in line with the idea of a God who will wipe away every tear. In the context of exile and return, uh, the notion of it being something transient and underwhelming as wealth it just seems utterly anemic compared to what God is actually promising. This term talks of an eternal reality. Um, It tells us that what we suffer now is fleeting, and it is unworthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. 
there's that antonym to suffering. I mean, I think I was meant to say the back. <laughs> if we actually settle for money, right, wealth, we say, oh yeah, God's going to make me rich. I mean, what a small thing. We allow ourselves to be content with such a small thing as opposed to this idea that one day God is going to reverse the fall. That that one day every tear will be wiped away. That one day I will no longer get sick. I will no longer fail God. That one day I will see him face to face transformed. You think I want money <laughs> compared to that? <coughs> no. We settle for something far too small when we fail to recognize that shalom is being promised by God. And that's why I said it does have more of the eschatological, more of that finally when I see him, than it does just now. There's that sense of the God who is in control. He is making this tapestry. It's not just a random tapestry. It is a tapestry of shalom. What he is making ends with this. I find that beautiful. <laughs> um, as I've said um, uh, previously, um, uh, kind of many times, um, if you look at a book like uh, the Book of Revelation, the Book of Revelation, um, incredible book. I mean, if you don't have a lot of Old Testament understanding before you get there, you're going to be lost completely. But that's okay, because there is a key verse in the Book of Revelation. If you don't get anything else in that book, there is a key verse. The reason we know it's a key verse is because it's repeated twice. Uh, it's the only thing repeated twice in the book. And it basically is a quote from Isaiah, which says that God will wipe away every tear. Incredible. You know, the hands that made creation, the hands that were held to a cross and nailed, will wipe away the tears. Spectacular. Now we're going to come back to that idea later on. But that is the wonderful and picture that lies behind this idea of the promise of shalom to broken people without hope. So I, I, it's kind of, I, I, I just want to kind of leave shalom in there. <laughs> you know, there isn't really anything that kind of fits uh, as well. Although I do appreciate the New King James went for peace. So you can kind of go, oh yeah, I remember that uh, shalom really. <laughs> when it comes to use, the word shalom um, is, is used quite, quite frequently. Um, um, it's, it's, it's a very common term. It, it, it's used 236 times, I think. Yes, perfect. Phew, bit of tension when you're knowing you caught out to get that wrong. So it's used 236 times, and it can mean uh, being well, having been sick, that, that contrast, or being made whole, a sense of good accord between people, usually uh, having been in bad relations, having been fixed, uh, the peace found in death, a sense of peace, uh, finality. Uh, the Prince of Shalom is, is described. Um, talking about Christ ultimately. But ultimately it's about this idea of the end of suffering, that post-judgment life that we get to live. And in the context of the exile, brought about through the failures of the people, I mean, how beautiful it is to be promised shalom. You know, you're getting what you've sown, you're reaping what you've sown, you're getting the consequences of your continued actions, and even so, I've got this plan for you. I've got this tapestry that I am weaving, and when it is finished, you will have Shalom. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> um, no. Um, the Ezekiel 
37, I will make a covenant of shalom with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever and ever. That kind of sense. Um, Ezekiel 34.25 I will make with them a covenant of shalom and banish the wild beasts from the land so they will dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. You know, it's got that sense of, of, of fullness and protection and there isn't a word for it in English. <laughs> Which is why it's difficult. <laughs> so, shalom. That's where the tapestry is headed. But I also want us to take us to uh, the next word, tikva. Um, uh, tikva is a word which is the one that basically means uh, expecting, you know, um, the one that we have that kind of expected future. Uh, sadly, it is not what you hope for. That, that, that's really not what the word means. The word is often used to describe an expecting, but it very often is a word that's used in desperation, quite often in vain. What I really quite like about it uh, is that it has connotations of pregnancy. Bear with me. Um, when you see a pregnant lady, you are apparently allowed to say that she is expecting. We use the same terminology in our own parlance. Same in Hebrew. This word would be used to describe a woman who is pregnant, say that she is expecting. What a brilliant word that is. Uh, in case uh, there are some people in the room who are unaware, um, uh, pregnancy uh, usually means, see in the short term, <laughs> that's going to hurt. That is really going to hurt. I mean, I've only been the observer on four occasions as my wife has given birth, but I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, that, that looks pretty painful. That's an important aspect of this. Tikva comes with pain in the short term, but that there is something beyond. And again, with pregnancy, short term, there's more pain than you can possibly imagine, but when it's done, what do you have? You have life in your hands. That's why it's such a good kind of metaphor. That's why it's such a good word to use here in Jeremiah. They're using the pregnancy term because Jeremiah's not saying, you know what, God's going to make it all right. He's actually saying, you know what, short term, more pain than you can possibly imagine. And you've got to bear in mind back then how many women died in childbirth. This was a term that was loaded with fear and trepidation. It says, this is what is coming. Short term, more pain than you can imagine, but with the tapestry of God, with his plans of shalom, what will you have ultimately? What will you have by the end of it all? You will have life. No wonder he can't translate that straight. <laughs> you know? You've got an expecting, a bit like a pregnant lady. <laughs> it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work, you know? But that's what lies behind uh, tikva. <coughs> it is a word that's used uh, 34 times in the text. It's used most often by Job, unsurprisingly, uh, 12 times, because it has that, 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 that literal level sense of, of threat. Um, the more common use of the term is um, a desperate longing or a hoping in vain, in the negative sense, and in the positive sense, that expectation, uh, Proverbs 24.14. Um, but as I say, um, it's used specifically um, to describe the hope in pregnancy or childbearing. Some examples. Um, 
Uh, turn back my daughter's school your way if I am too old to have a man, if I should say I have the chance of expecting, and she's clearly talking about um, children, uh, even I should have a man this night and should bear sons. So even though we, we kind of soften it as it were, expecting, which means you know, getting pregnant and, and being able to, to have a child. Um, interestingly enough, uh, in Jeremiah 31, the same thing is, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back into their own country. I take this one out uh, because it's a parallel statement. Um, you can see where the comment is there in English. There's actually two, two lines of statement. There's a parallel going on. And so it uses tikva, the idea of pregnancy and giving birth to children at the beginning, and then children, as it were, of the fulfillment of the promise uh, later on. So you've got to say, uh, there is this uh, expectant pregnancy-loaded word <laughs> for your future, declares the Lord. And what is that future in the end? It involves the children who will come back to their own country. So you see how it is used, as it were, to convey pregnancy and ultimately uh, their children. I think that's quite appropriate. What a wonderfully opposite word to be using. And then at the end, you know the expected end, or you know the future that you're hoping for, the future kind of idea? Acharith, <coughs> at the end. Um, I rendered it in my translation as end. Um, I think it, it's good because it's, it's combined with this idea of expectancy. So there is going to be a time of pain, but that pain will end. That time will finish. There's a sense by which it promises an end of the specific exilic destruction. And with the use of shalom and the ultimate sense of that final end given in this term, we have the promise of a future Beyond this, we have a promise of a world without pain. That's really important. If you put these words all together, you have this idea, we've got this shalom, the tapestry of shalom, you've got this expecting, right now not looking good, but this is going to end. And it works really well together. Uh, Again, (coughs) this term occurs 61 times, and strictly speaking, it means the uttermost point of something. Um, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, it it describes the end, the the absolute end of something. So um, it's used to describe the salvation of God, saving people, even if they cry out at the very end, you know, the very last breath that they have, if they cry out to God with that last breath, he is still able to save. At the end of a set period of time, you know, the end of the year, that last second has elapsed, the absolute end. Uh, The last days of a person's life, the end of a nation, the judgment of God is described as the ultimate end. Um, the last or latter days uh, described in this way and so it lends itself to describe this eternal destination you know, the word is, is loaded with eternity you know, each of us have an ultimate end each of us are going to stand before God I'm quite excited by that idea but as the text tells it's not something to be excited for everyone but there is an ultimate end for each and every one of us. And that word is loaded with that sense. And so by putting it at the end of his verse, Jeremiah is telling his people, there is this expectancy, immediate pain, but ultimately life. It's going to come to an ultimate end. And then it pushes you back to the beginning, because God is making this tapestry of shalom. See how it all kind of works together, all these big words. (coughs) So, (coughs) 
conclusions on God as a weaver. Uh, sovereignty needs to be understood alongside the concept of shalom and akarif. That we have here a sovereign God who uses his authority and power to wipe away every tear, to provide hope to the hopeless, and an end more glorious than we can possibly imagine. I did that very quickly. Any questions? <laughs> or comments? Because I will keep going otherwise. <laughs> what I'll actually do is I'm going to push it back to, to the translation, just so we can see it all in our heads as it were. And hopefully this now helps us make sense of why I've gone for this. Uh, if I know the texture, and as I said, maybe tapestry might be better there, but if I know the tapestry that I have weaved over you, says Yahweh, a tapestry of shalom and not of evil, to give you an expected end. <coughs> That makes sense. Just out of curiosity, what is not of evil? If you say like shalom means you're going to go through a really bad patch and then it's going to be next to the end, how does that compare to evil? Yeah, I mean, I just need two really strongly contrasting words. So it wasn't just simply uh, going through, through a bad patch or, or you know, something. I, I mean, the, the strength word is the idea of, of, of absolutes. Um, it, it is trying to work with absolutes. And so evil, I think, is, is possibly the, the, the best one because it's not even just disaster. Uh, it's not even just you know, calamity or something. It, it's the, the utter opposite of, of shalom. Um, which is quite difficult to, to convey, but actually is more often used then to describe evil uh, elsewhere in the text. But, so, but how is it the opposite? Because the way you describe it, it sounds like it's almost the same. With something bad happening, i.e. the evil bit, yes. then you get a good bit at the end. Where the second part says evil stuff, and then a good bit at the end. But, but they are a complete contrast. And the, the, the <laughs> so, um, the, the, the shalom and the evil are, are two contrasting terms, uh, and, and they're supposed to be contrasting terms because God's saying, I'm not giving you that, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this, I'm giving you the shalom. Um, that's what he is making. So, so um, the, the tapestry or texture that is being weaved is one of shalom. So yes, they are experiencing evil, they are experiencing something awful, but that's not what God is making. God is making this tapestry of shalom, and it's to be contrasted. It's an utter contrast to what they themselves have essentially reaped. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that the Babylonians wouldn't have come for them if they hadn't disregarded God at every level. Um, I mean, one of the main reasons the Babylonians come for them, we know, is because of the great riches that they had and boasted of to the Babylonians. Most of those riches were gathered because they had done lots of things that the, the Bible said not to do. So they basically took all the money from the poor and stored it all up and got the attention of the Babylonians. If they did what God had actually told them to do in the first place, the Babylonians wouldn't have come. So they've reaped, as it were, they have reaped this, this evil that has come to them. But that's not what God is making. God is making the shalom. So in other words, you know, you're experiencing evil right now, but that's not what's going to be going on forever. And so there's a sharp contrast between, yes, what they're going through, and then what God is making. So for, for any of us, you know, it's entirely possible we can go through a time of absolute evil. 
where the, 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 the consequences of the fall are writ large uh, across our lives. Uh, sometimes through our own fault and most of the time not. But that is in contrast to what God is making, which is this shalom. And it's an ongoing making. It's not completed yet. So yes, we will experience the evil. And so then, that then leads to the next one. Yeah, you're experiencing it now. But that's not what God is making. And there's going to be an end to this when the tapestry is complete. And, and so that's, that's the idea. Um, so that's why evil is a contrast to shalom. They're going through it. But God is making something else. And there will be an end. And then they, they experience real shalom. In a way, you, you carry through your life, you may encounter, you may go through passages of evil and dire times, but you carry with you the shalom that God gives you through his word and his promises. Yes. So they're going on simultaneously, in a a way. Yeah, so the way that we would apply that to right now, yes, we've got hope in the eschatological sense of of shalom, and I think that is the main purpose of that that text, to give hope despite what's going on. However, the God who writes this is the God who's with us now. And so the God who has this intention, the God who, who hates sin and the damage it does and the pain that it causes, the God who said, I'll wipe away the tears. So that God who promises all of this is with us now. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. So as we need to see what the text says, and it is eschatological, but we also need to see that that same God is willing to be with us. Now, what I love about this, actually, is, is, is these people who are going to go to Babylon, they go to Babylon and they find God is there. He, he leaves the temple and he goes to Babylon. And it's quite incredible, you know. I mean, it's their mess. <laughs> you know, they rebelled against God. They didn't want to serve God. They had nothing to do with God. They get there and they say, God, can you help us? And they say, yeah, I'm right here. I was it's quite incredible. Now, they sort of go through the consequences of their actions. But God is there with them. And I think that that is um, a secondary sense. I'm not suggesting that is the purpose of that verse. The purpose of that verse is to give them hope. But realistically, an awful lot of hope is the fact that that God, who has shalom as his, his work, his hand's work, is with us now. And obviously there are other verses that support that <laughs> uh, as well. But I think that's a really important part. Um, there have been many, many people that I have been in a position to try and are supposed to help when they go through a time of absolute evil. And, you know, sometimes actually holding on with the fingernails to the idea that, you know, this is going to end. (laughs) We'll get to glory. It's great, uh, but actually knowing that God is with us now is is, is huge. Emmanuel uh, thing. Because I'm trying to, I'm linking it in my head to to Jesus. And and how, I just love how it's a verse that comes from God not being able to help himself by speaking hope and peace and life and promise to people who aren't completely abandoned, even though they go through such a terrible and horrible experience. Because one was completely abandoned, and that was Jesus in our state, in our place. So it it actually brings a great cost as well when you you find out that. Yeah, I I mean, the texture that is being made cannot be made without Christ. You know, ultimately, the, the piece that we get, the thing that is being made, ultimately, is made because of Christ. Uh, I mean, we could, 
didn't push a metaphor too far, but I mean, what do you see, like the loom, is it, you know, I mean, it's difficult to get you push it too far, but that idea, yeah, and, and, and uh, it, but it shows this nature of God, and for me, this is one thing that's really, really important when we read these things. I like trying to understand the text, but then also try and, try and understand that every single text we have tells us something about God. One of the problems that we have, and I'm getting even out of this verse, one of the problems that we have is we read the Bible the wrong way around. We think, what's this, what's this verse saying to me right now, for me, in my life? And I say, well, actually, no, stop. <laughs> what's this verse saying about God? And then how does that apply to my life? And, and I think it's really important. So, you know, the very, very beginning, what we have with man and woman, and they destroy creation. They rebel against God. And what does he do? He dresses them. And he makes promises to them that he's going to fix this. You know, we get all the way through to, like, to Abraham, uh, which I'll be preaching on him Sunday night, which is probably why it's in my head right now. But you know, but there's wonderful promise of God that God Himself will die in order to save man. You know, and as we go through the Old Testament, you've got all these incredible promises. He can't help but be God. And grace and mercy, grace and mercy, consistently shown to be we don't deserve it. I mean, even in First Samuel, when they say we don't want God anymore, we want a king. We don't want to be like all the other nations, which is an incredible devotion. You know, I want to be like all the other nations. Uh, we don't want God to be our ruler anymore. We want a king, and that king can fight our battles instead of God. And what does God do? Well, first of all, he gives them a king that they want. He gives them salt because he meets all of their criteria. And then he says, well, actually, here's David. And I'm going to promise to David a perfect king. I'm going to work with where you are, even if you've just completely blown it. And, and that God is behind this text. Uh, and we see him. And, and I think it, it is perfectly applicable to where we are right now. Yes, hold on to what's coming, but hold on to the one who's with you right now, who has this in his mind. Because this tells you who he is. Oh. So the word for evil, is that supposed to represent like an absence of shalom, or does it have its own like meaning itself? It's very often used as the, the comparison to Shalom. So in use, I would say that it is the, the opposite of Shalom. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of the meaning that, that it has. I'm not saying that's where it came from originally, but in terms of how it's used over and over again, it's very often contrasted between the two. Yeah. Okay, Bing's question. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah. Um, I get quite excited when I see verses like this. You know? I get kind of blown away by the depth of what actually lies behind it. And, and I'll be honest, I, I find that far more beautiful than very often what, what, what we get. But I also appreciate how difficult it must be to translate that, because, I mean, I've got that there, but I've, I've taken an hour to explain it. <laughs> you know, if you send the Bible out there, it doesn't come with an audio guide <laughs> with an hour for every verse explaining what's actually going on. You've got to send in something which will make sense to people the second they read it. You know, and, and that's a much harder thing than what I'm doing just now, which is really telling what it actually says, but taking all the time in the world to do so. Um, so hopefully you have some sympathy for the poor translators. <laughs> None of us can agree <laughs> on how to translate it. Um, it it's not easy. But... <laughs> I wanted to do one more word, which is not in this verse, but kind of, in a way, sums up what I'm trying to get at in this, and in part of the conversation we had there. (laughs) 
um, my tenth word, uh, Yahweh Shema. Now, uh, last, um, last week we did a whole lot of titles of God. And this is a kind of a title, it's also used as, as a description. It basically means Yahweh is there. I find that really beautiful. Uh, uh, idea. It basically uh, comes from the word there. Uh, for once the Hebrew is not difficult. <laughs> the personal name of God and just simply there. Uh, Sham. Uh, the concept of having the simple term next to, to God. Uh, it describes God defined by a space. So we have this relational name of God and the fact that he can be found, that he is, is actually present. Um, it's found in Ezekiel 48-35 in connection to the New Jerusalem. Again, it's an eschatological uh, idea, the, the end times as it were. Uh, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. An idea taken on, obviously, in the book of Revelation, uh, the idea of, of, of the people of God being the city of God, and God is there. He is dwelling uh, in their midst. Uh, but Yahweh Shema uh, here uh, comes at the end of a chapter describing uh, the inheritance of the restored tribes, the renewal of the city of Jerusalem, and it's part of a promise to the exiles that there will be this miraculous restoration. Um, because you've got to bear in mind that most of the tribes have been wiped out. We've been thinking of the 12 tribes, you know, most of them have been wiped out by this point. It's outlandish when it talks about the size of the land, the size of the city. It's an eschatological point that God is trying to make. Now, um, I've added this word. Why would I use this word? And bearing in mind quite a bit of the conversation we just had. But why would I use, why would, you know, I've only got so many words <laughs> to share with you. Why would I waste one, as it were, on something that's quite easy? You know, simply Yahweh is there. And why in this context of sovereignty? Why do you think I've done that? You can say I don't know as well. I <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I mean, if I was to say God is here, that, that, that's limited it. It's far more than God is there. Um, and also you've got the sense of God is, is, is there, you know, ultimately, because a lot of what we're talking about is in glory, but it's not restricted to there. And you know, God is there and there and there and there, and when you are broken, he is there, and you know, when you're rejoicing, he is there. It's got that, that wonderfully wider sense to it. I think is, is, is important when I'm thinking of Jeremiah because I, I know I stopped to have that conversation, but it's not all eschatological. It's not all of a one day will be okay. Hold on long enough. That, that's not sufficient. You see what I mean? Yes, God is there, but we find him you know, in many more places as well. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I think actually rather helps us. I mean, when we think of, of, of the text that I had there, the, the, the Ezekiel 1, and, and how that same idea is in, in Revelation, essentially, I think it's quite good to help us 
reappraise the Old and New Testament because we see this as the intention of God, that one day man and God will live together. Um, I think that this term, God is there, really describes the trajectory of the whole Bible. Uh, once we have Adam and Eve and the great divorce, as uh, the Hebrew describes it, um, I know we, disc- we say um, God drove them out. Sounds a bit like he's a chauffeur, I, I recognise, but uh, that's not quite what was intended. It actually says in Hebrew, God divorced them. And it's supposed to be this, this incredibly painful thing. It's not just simply that they've been relocated, but everything's been broken, including the relationship with God has been broken. And they no longer have access to the dowry, which is the garden. They are now out with all of that. And so from that moment, all the way through, the restoration of relationship between God and man seems to be the trajectory of the text. It's the intention of God and the Bible. And so, you know, we see, this, we see this willingness of God to dwell with people. We know we see it when he comes and speaks to the patriarchs. I think we specifically see it in the creation of the tabernacle when God will dwell in the midst of his people. Uh, and then uh, the temple. God is there. He dwells with his people. And yet there is still a strong degree of separation. He is so close in the tabernacle, but not really close enough. Not for him. Uh, the idea that God would be there living with us wasn't quite enough Um, and so uh, in a real sense the whole theme of salvation the lives we're called to live the journey that reaches its crescendo in Calvary and its culmination in Revelation and so uh, it goes without saying that most of the New Testament comes from the Old and the ideas of God who promised to wipe away the tears that I've mentioned Uh, this God who promises shalom and he dwells with his people in the New Jerusalem it's a direct fulfillment of Yahweh Shema. That idea that one day we live with him is the fulfillment of that term. Um, so there's a New Testament equivalent to this word. Um, but they need a couple of verses to get it. <laughs> um, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Or as we say in Hebrew, Yahweh Shema. As we say, you know, when we look at that wonderful verse in Jeremiah, this is what it's aiming at. That's the tapestry that will one day be complete. So for now, uh, it's enough to see that salvation, the story of God, the people of God, past, present and future, is all wrapped up in grasping that fact that God is our weaver. He is weaving this plan of shalom because Yahweh Shema, he is there. And the wonderful thing about that term is that, yes, we don't just simply need to wait until one day we see him in glory. But as we walk outside that door, God is there. Uh, With everything that we can encounter, God is there. And his intention to be more and more there until one day his hand touches your cheek and wipes away the tears. Love that. Absolutely love that. And so uh, hopefully you get to see just in one verse (laughs) that there's an incredible depth and, and richness to the language that lies behind it. And rather than ruining verses, rather than simply saying, oh, it's all wrong, which is not what I mean to say, but there is far more very often 
And um, hopefully you've also got a degree of sympathy for the translators trying to convey all of that, which has taken me an hour and 20 minutes, uh, in just a few words. Um, hopefully I'm never too harsh in those through <laughs> people that actually do that job. Uh, but hopefully you can see why it's quite important sometimes to see some of these words. Uh, hopefully you'll be here next week. Um, I never take anything for granted. Uh, hopefully you'll be here next week. And again, we're going to be looking at even more wonderful Hebrew words. Uh, but if you have any questions at all, I'm quite happy to take them for the next, say, 15 minutes or so. So thank you uh, very much for coming. Yes? Things behind the scenes in each of them, and sometimes that helps. 
and sometimes it's not so helpful. And on this occasion, it just happened that King James had, had quite helpful things in the background that pushed him in that direction. Yeah. 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 I think the best thing is they avoided the Greek that time. <laughs> yeah.